Hello, Giles here. And knowing that we have a family audience and the purple people often include some very young people, just to say that today's episode does include some language that some people may find uncomfortable or offensive. Hello and welcome to Something Rhymes with Purple. This is a podcast all about words and language. And today we're returning to a subject that we thought we could cover in a single episode. Oh, so foolishly, Giles, didn't we? And we ended up just doing a teeny tiny fraction of the entire subject. Literally razor sharp on top of it. We got to A to E last time. We're going to go F onwards as far as we get today. I appreciate that's what's happening. And <laughs> I, I learned this week that foreign students learning English are now being taught modern phrases and slang words such as beef, bear and fam at schools and colleges. Mm. I read this and I thought, well, I don't know what beef, bear and fam mean. And everybody said to me, oh, well, ask Susie. She's bound to know. And I thought, I won't tell her that I'm going to ask her. I'm going to just, okay. I'm going to throw it as a surprise. So I have. I've thrown it as a surprise, which is why you thought, oh, well, what was he doing? We're going through these. Oh, what's he up to? What's he up to now? And I wanted to know if you know what beef means in a modern, modern use of the word. Well, my understanding of it is not too different to how you and I would uh, understand it if someone said, oh, he's got beef with so-and-so or um, to you know, to bear a grievance is to have a beef with someone. So I think and how I've understood it in, in teen slang particularly is, um, so Giles and Susie have got beef. In other words, they're, they're sort of squabbling and fighting with each other. That's how I understand it. You're spot on. That is okay, the good. correct answer, Susie Dent. This is why you are the world's leading lexicographer. <laughs> Just give me the other two, bear. Bear, that's been around for a while. So this B-A-R-E. is bear, B-A-R-E. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and this just means very, oh, like... God. Yeah, you know all this stuff. Well, we this this no one's idea. been around for a while. I've been I, well, this podcast with you for five years. You never introduced <laughs> me to bear before. When I when I say bear, you say move on. And I used to have. Do you remember? <laughs> I had a, a, a fuzzy on a jumper and on the back, yes. Paddington. And you said, why have you got that? I said, because I like to have a bear behind. And you said, oh, for goodness sake, man. <laughs> okay. The third one I offered you was fam. F A M. Yeah, that? that's just your friends, isn't it? Oh. That's just your, your, you know, your bros. Uh, so, uh, yeah, <laughs> I sound so ridiculous. Um, okay, so one that I learned the other day was, uh, this was the sentence that was delivered to me. Oh, mum, that's so long. Oh, that's you know so that long. I don't know what that means at all. That means boring? It's incredibly annoying and irritating. That's so long. Oh. So that's a new one for me. I think dead means boring. Oh, that's dead. Means that's boring. Okay. Which is quite Been and nice. gone. Yeah. Um, well, well, there we are. I'm, I'm, I mean, I'm, look, the truth is I'm gassed. That means I'm excited that I miss <laughs> you. Uh, I'm not shook, which mean would mean that I'm scared. And I'm glad that we've linked up because we're meeting up. So now it's time for you to... I'm glad you didn't say hook up then. Oh, what, would that, um, what does that mean? Well, hook up now. I think in our generations, it was quite innocent, wasn't it? Let's hook up later. But actually, there's a definite sexual sense to hooking up now. And of course, the most famous one that morphed in meaning, which a lot of purple people will already know, is Netflix and chill. Netflix and chill. You oh, know yes. that one, don't you? I am familiar with yeah. that. But there yeah. has been a variation on the w- word that you have been talking about a lot, I know, over the Christmas holidays, which is riz, the word of the year last mm. year. Possibly, yeah. possibly derived from charisma or possibly not. Because yeah. I heard that riz, as well as meaning 
you know, it's got riz, you've got charisma. It's also mean could mean that you're good at chatting up. Good yeah, at, uh, so you riz someone up. Uh, exactly. So there's a definite, uh, it, it is, I think, as in my experience, but it's never actually been used directly to me, um, is that it is predominantly used on dating websites and dating apps and that kind of thing. So you riz someone up um, and you are, it means, yeah, you're really good at flirting. So it's not, I for me, it's not quite as wide as sex appeal or charisma because it actually is predominantly, again, I think used of um, men chatting up women, I think. Well, I want to tell you that this podcast, today's episode, as far as I'm concerned, is Peng. Oh, Peng. Yeah. Uh, Nang, as they used to say, yes, Peng. It's, all, it's just funny. Adjectives of approval are the ones that seem to uh, evolve and revolve most quickly. And do you remember I said to you, I think, when we were talking about slang, but also particularly about those words of the year, that... I think I mentioned that cool was first recorded in 19th century public school slang. So if something is cool, it's the opposite of hot. So it's flipping, as slang often does, it's flipping the traditional meaning. And that one I always assumed any, any generation can use, but um, but now I can't use it because I just get an eye roll if I say that's cool. But you can say that's peng, which means that's good. I think I'd look absolutely ridiculous if I start, well, sound it at least, if I started going around saying that's peng. <laughs> I would be mortified to use it myself, I think. Basically, we're going through the alphabet and looking at words beginning with letters, or that are the letters themselves. Mm. And I've always loved this because I loved the crossword puzzle clue that I remember from my childhood, which was basically the letters H-I-J-K-L-M-N-O. And the answer was a five-letter word. And of course, the answer was water, because that's H-2-O. Very good. We haven't got quite to H yet. We're at F, aren't we? We are. Does we F are at mean F. Anything in its own way? Does F mean anything? No, not on its own. Um, it is. Well, it began as well, as so many of these did as an Egyptian hieroglyph, um, and it was a horned asp. Whilst in the Phoenician alphabet, it was represented by a peg. So all, I guess, about the you know the shape of the letter. But interestingly, I was asked the other day, just when we we're talking about a horned asp, I was asked by a radio presenter. Is it a horned viper or a horned viper? And it seems that in taxonomic terms or in uh, zoological terms, horned is preferred over horned. And I looked it up in the OED and actually horned is the first pronunciation given for uh, for this word, H-O-R-N-E-D. So I think it might be a horned asp. Anyway, um, there, there you go. In poetry, I mean, I would have said horned. Yeah. But occasionally when you're reading a poem, you find uh, an accent uh, yes. if they want to indicate, because for, to give me, make the meter right, the yeah. horned, whatever it is, they will put a, like a grave accent? Uh, yes, or some kind of diacritic. Um, sometimes a di- what's a diacritic? A, That's a little... A diacritic is pretty much an accent or something, but it covers the whole gamut. Can I say with the reviews I've had over the years, every critic I've met has been a diacritic. <laughs> Um, spelled slightly differently, but yes. we'll go with it. Thank you very much. So, F, 
There used to be an expression, um, F is written on his face. And that's because the letter F, which stood for felon, um, used to be branded near the nose of a criminal. Oh, my. And it was also used for anyone caught brawling in church, apparently. And this wasn't abolished until 1822. Now, I'm really hoping it wasn't an indelible, painful brand of the sort that might be used on Castle, which is bad enough. But, yeah, F is written on his face meant... Uh, this is a felon. I suspect it was written on his face. I suspect well, it was hideous. indelible. It's extraordinary. I, I was with this morning a man who you're going to hear more about when I come to read my poem today, who's 91, who was telling me that his father, during the Second World War, was imprisoned for a month for stealing a pencil. He had worked, I think, for the railways in some capacity, and he used a pencil in his work. And inadvertently, he left the premises with the pencil in his pocket. You're kidding me. And he was stopped and charged with stealing this pencil. Good. And he had to serve a month in prison. So there have been tough, rough sentences. Wow. Not so long ago. It's only 80 years. Crazy. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. That's very sad. Branding people. F is written on his face. Oh, mm. that is quite frightening. And of course, now, if we just see an F, we automatically think it stands for the F word, really, regardless of whether it comes with asterisks, etc. Well, Giles doesn't. I don't think, no. I you think a felon. If I saw F then with dash, 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 I mm. wouldn't do that. But if I mm. thought F on its own, I would think of the note, A, B, C, D, E, F. Nice. I mean, I, nice. seriously, I think I would. Yeah. Uh, but if, I, uh, well, if people say the F word, then I know what, what of course. our meaning Fun. Yeah, well, it's interesting that you also mention the musical note because just a minute ago um, I talked about the whole gamut when it came to diacritics, and that is all about musical notes because it comes from the medieval Latin gamma and then ut, and so that was the name of the lowest note in the medieval scale. And then it was applied to the whole range of notes used in medieval music. So if it's the whole gamut, it's all the notes on a musical scale. But that gamma is, in fact, the letter C rather than the letter G. Exactly. It It brings us quite nicely, doesn't it, to the letter, well, gamma, really, to the letter G, which is where we've got to. But you say gamma because it isn't the letter G, or is it? Were the C and the G interchangeable at some stage? Well, it's a modification of, of C for Latin, So, um, but in Greek it was gamma. And the g and the k, the hard k sounds, were both represented by the letter C originally. And when does that little extra line that turns a C into a G come? This is wonderful. We've reached the G spot. When did, when did that come into play? I think around the 4th century, maybe, maybe a little bit before. But, uh, yeah, so I suppose fairly early on in in alphabetical terms. So what have we got to say about the letter G that's interesting? Uh, Well, not a huge amount, except that in the Hebrew and Old Phoenician alphabets, it was the outline of a camel's head and neck, which I quite like. So, I, I, you know, it's it's so uh, quite often, obviously, as I said before, it is all about the shape, but quite often it also seems to be entirely random. But um, we don't always know what the motivation was in terms of the, the, you know, the hieroglyphic illustrations. Can you quickly touch on the G-spot? Ah, well, the G-spot is named after, I think he was called Greifenberg, um, who was a physician. Um, Yeah, Ernst Greifenberg. And he was a gynecologist that first described the G-spot. 
And this is a real thing, is it? Yeah, I think it is. Good. It's, it's basically the highly erogenous zone, isn't it? Very good. And why, yeah. what's the difference between, well, the G-spot is named after this man. What about the G-string? Yeah, we talked about that. And um, we honestly don't know where it comes from. So some people think it began with Native Americans who would wear loincloths or sort of coverings that were a little bit like thongs behind whereas others think that it was as thin as now oh well as thick as the g-string of a violin which i think is the thickest string actually so um but other people think it was named after the musical string it's still not very thick is it it's pretty scant. exactly exactly so we're not entirely sure you're not wearing much if you're wearing a g-string no have you, ever, have you ever worn a G-string? Have I ever worn a G-string? Well, yes. No. We've done lots of acting. Well, I no. Well, I did appear. No, I have appeared in moments from the Rocky Horror Show, oh. which did require, I think, what I would best describe as a gold lame codpiece. Wow. Uh, a codpiece, so called, because cod is that a cod? is a euphemism for no. Uh, well, C O double D was an old, very old word for the scrotum, I think. Oh. And so a cod piece was something that protected your genital area. So yeah. it was a gold lame um, scrotum protector, which yeah. I wore with fishnet tights. No, not tights. Wow. Stockings and suspenders. Uh, and often, so hang on. So was this in? A, was this on stage or was this in a film? It was on stage. Uh, that off, there's actually rather a good photograph of it online. I say a good photograph. It was taken by um, quite oh, a English photographer. I'm not sure I want to look up Giles Brandreth in a g-string. What should uh, I look well, up? It's, you, you look up uh, Giles Brandreth maybe in fishnet tights. Um, well, should I just look up Rocky Horror? Look up Rocky Horror. Look up. It's I'm trying to remember the name. Oh of... my goodness! Yes, I've gone straight to it. <laughs> oh my god! Uh, am I sitting side? Wow! Am I am I standing or sitting in the photograph you've got? You're standing oh, and well. looking very happy. I'm sorry. About and that. you've got your hands on your hips and you're oh. strutting. Oh, well, there your you are. I am, I am. That is from Rocky Horror Show. There is a more distinguished looking picture taken by a Murdo MacLeod, I think his name was, um, a famous Scottish uh, photographer, where I am, which has won awards, this photograph has won awards, where I'm actually sitting with one knee raised in these fishnet tights. And I'm quite pleased with that. I, I've not been, I didn't, I haven't felt able to send the photograph to anyone, nor show it to my wife or children. Well, the entire purple community is now going to look it up. But this, this in The Guardian, the time reading here, says it was from Zip, your musical. It was. Did you wear one for that too? I, I, well, I have, yes, in that you show. See, it's all coming out now. In that show, I have to say, there was a lot of camping around and dressing up. I did Hello Dolly and Mame simultaneously. So I went once across the stages in Hello, my Hello Dolly outfit, and then I came back in my Mame outfit. I was in frocks and suspenders throughout. And then the show ended with me as Dorothy in The Wizard of Oz with emerald slippers, you know. Oh, wow. We like to think the whole theatre exploded in excitement. This is lovely. I'm just going to read you this, and then we'll get back to the alphabet. So this is from the same Guardian interview. Guardian being um, for those purple people outside Britain. Uh, it's a broadsheet newspaper over here. And it says, Brandreth gets to do pocket-sized versions of the Rocky Horror Show, La Cage Folle and Starlight Express, shamelessly camping it up in suspenders and stockings like a real pro or the average Tory MP. <laughs> <laughs> this is from The Guardian, which I think tells you everything you need to know, both about The Guardian and possibly about me as well. It yeah. was about a quarter of a century ago, but there we are. And I, I think I oh, and I, oh, I will tell you this story. Now we're mm -hmm. talking about it. When I was doing, I began that show in Edinburgh, but it went on tour around the country, ended up in the West End. And I, it was a big hit 
in Edinburgh and you couldn't get tickets. And I was waiting out, I was going to the theatre one day and I saw in the queue waiting to get returns, Sir Ian McKellen. Mm. Anyway, after the show, um, we met up for uh, a cup of coffee and uh, he, uh, we sat there and I was back dressed in my normal clothes. And uh, he said to me, Giles, tell me the truth. Are you still wearing your stockings and suspenders? <laughs> and I said, well, since you ask me, Ian, I am. Now, how did you know? He said, because I'm still wearing mine. Oh, how funny. Yeah. Oh, so we're a brilliant. couple of camp old darlings, no matter. Yeah. What did the word Love camp that. come to be mean, that sort of behaviour that I'm describing now? exaggerated theatrical behaviour. Yeah, I was asked this the other day, actually, and we're not entirely sure. So um, theatrical slang, almost certainly, but there was a verb in French, se camper, so to camp oneself, uh, which meant to behave in a very exaggerated manner and uh, sort of, you know, as I say, very theatrical. But we actually don't know. And se camper in French also meant sort of being slightly provocative, which is maybe what led to the idea of just sort of really hamming it up. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so we're, we're not sure. Uh, and why why succombe exists in French? Because if you take it back far enough, it probably is all about Roman encampments. But maybe the idea was of being provocative, sort of slightly, uh, I don't know, bellicose. I'm not quite sure. It's an interesting one. Right, let's explore further. We've reached H, which is the halfway mark. So why don't we take a quick break and then explore the letter H? Lovely. Do you ever wonder how celebrities order food? Like, is Sarah Paulson a Diet Coke or a regular Coke girlie? <laughs> Some peasant Coke? No. Or how does Sofia Vergara order a pizza? No, not, no tomatoes. I cannot eat tomatoes. tomatoes? Yes. Are you killed mushrooms? Not really. <laughs> if these are the details you need, and I know you do, I have the podcast for you. I'm Jesse Tyler Ferguson, and on my podcast, Dinners on Me, I take some notable friends of mine out to dinners in Los Angeles and New York City. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. That thing was delicious. This is Something Rhymes with Purple. We're going through the alphabet, looking at the letters of the alphabet and where they lead us. And we had some fun with the G-spot, the G-string, if not the G-force. Oh, I've heard of a G-force. What does that mean? Yeah, G-force. Oh, my goodness. I'm not very... I'm looking this up because my physics is not very good. So we talk about Gs, don't we? Um, oh, it's simply an abbreviation of gravitational force. I should have known that. That's from 1930s. And when people like Americans say G, that's actually... Uh, a euphemism for Jesus, euphemism. isn't it? Which for God, probably, or Jesus, a. yes. Oh. Yes, yeah. Good. Okay, H, tell us all about the origin of the letter H. Well, this is um, another one that came from the Phoenician um, alphabet, and the, the form of our capital H went through Roman, Latin, and Greek, the Roman language uh, of Latin. And it had two crossbars instead of one, and originally in uh, the Phoenician alphabet, it represented a fence, but the corresponding Egyptian hieroglyph, believe it or not, was a sieve, Ooh. And the Anglo-Saxon runes, so you can see just how far apart these were in terms of their pictorial representations. Uh, it was called hail, as in the hail that falls from the sky. So lots and lots of different conceptions, I suppose, of the letter H. But again, it's been around for a very long time. H. Uh, is there, well, of course, there's the H-bomb which people used to refer to. They don't any longer. Yeah. I suppose it doesn't no. exist. It was the it's hydrogen. been superseded, isn't it? Hydrogen bomb, the yeah. other horrors. H. 
Yeah. Anything, any any words? I mean, is H a word? Do you like people who drop their H's? Well, that was what I was going to come on to because that's always the big question, isn't it? Is it H or H? And like many sort of so-called new or for those who hate it, aberrant um, pronunciations, it's usually used by the younger generation. So when I go to schools, uh, H is predominantly used by the kids and indeed by some of the teachers as well. Uh, and they, uh, the standard given in the dictionary at the moment is still H without. But the one thing I do always say to those people who complain bitterly about H making a, a sort of not just an entrance, but, you know, hanging around, is that if you went to some Victorian grammar school, you might find that children were actually being told to say H because it wasn't it was considered rude to drop your H's. And and H has drifted in and out of fashion according to its pronunciation. So, you know, we had an hotel, for example, and then we had a hotel, but hotel was considered to be the, the more polite and urbane form of it. So it's really quite circular in terms of, you know, what we prefer. I think it's valid to say H. Because the word does, you know, H is the letter H, and rather good that it should begin with an H. I mean, it's odd that we say F, uh, which is the letter F, but actually, if you're speaking it, you speak with an E. E is F, isn't it? Yeah, well, the the H without the H has so often uh, from French, ash, does not have um, an H at the beginning. And, you know, there was that time, as I always say, when French was considered cool and fashionable and everybody wanted to follow follow it. Well, is it not still the diplomatic language? I mean, I think still, I don't know whether Mm -hmm. it still happens at court, but certainly until quite recently at court, the menus were always printed in French. I know from writing my biography of the late Queen Elizabeth II, that when she was a little girl, and as Princess Elizabeth with her sister moved into Buckingham Palace, they, as children, they had food served to them up in the nursery, and the menus in the nursery... Were French. Wow. Well, I suppose it was quite good for them to help learn their... Good practice, practice. yeah. But isn't that amusing? That is, I think there's always a big tussle in diplomatic circles between French and English, actually, um, and a bit of resentment by the French that English is being seen as the lingua franca when, as you say, it was it was predominantly French. I know now in the European Union, now that Britain has left the European Union, that they mostly speak in English because I think Ireland is the only country within the European Union where the first language is uh, sort of 27 or whatever it is countries in the European Union, and only one has English as its main language, and yet. That's the language in which they operate. Yeah. But it is It is the world language, isn't it? What does lingua franca mean? People often use this. It's a Latin phrase, isn't it? Yeah, so lingua franca is almost like a sort of free language. Uh, so franca actually is behind frank, which also gave us the name of France. And the Franks, if you remember, were... Now, what was their relationship with the Gauls? That it, was quite, it was quite a complicated one, wasn't it? So I think the Franks conquered the Gauls Gauls, if I'm right, and they considered everything, everything of theirs to be highly superior. And so Frank came to mean open and honest, and it also meant free from solitude. Uh, frankincense is superior incense. That's the idea behind that. So a lingua franca is really, in some ways, it's the language of the free people, um, which is quite interesting. But it's all linked up with, you know, with that history of the, the Franks and the Gauls. It literally means Frankish tongue. But it's it's really, I suppose, in its, in its broadest definition, it's a common language between speakers who don't have the same first language. Yeah. 
And English really is the lingua franca because, as you've told me, there are now more people who speak English, not as their first language, but as a second language. Yeah, we are, we're vastly outnumbered now. Wow. There's, there's native speakers. Yeah, I think that's really exciting. It is exciting. I know, not, not everyone would agree. It means the world can tune in to Something Rhymes with Purple and understand <laughs> what we are saying. Well, let's and hope so. What we're saying next, I want to know about, is the letter I mm. in relation to the letter J. Are yeah. connected in any way? They look so similar yeah. in some ways. Yeah, they were interchangeable. So in Greek, the letter I was iota. And so, yes, the printed I and J were just essentially pronounced, well, represented exactly the same thing. And it was only in the 19th century that they began to be treated as separate letters. And really? In you, some- so hold on. You're telling me that a word like join used hmm. in Shakespeare, the I and the J could be I... Yeah. O-I-N, yeah. and that would mean join? Yes. Um, I don't wow. know whether they were very, uh, whether they applied particular rules um, to the beginnings of words and that kind of thing. But if you look at Samuel Johnson's dictionary in 1755, you will find iambic, beginning with an I, coming between jam and jangle. Uh, so, yeah, it was an uh, alphabetization it, to modernise would seem to be slightly random. But I really like I. Well, first of all, I mentioned the Greek iota, OK? And when we say not an iota of respect, we're talking about not even the tiniest amount. Um, and that was because I and J, indeed, are, were considered small letters of the alphabet. And the dot on the I, and indeed the J, was called a tittle. And it's possible that when we describe someone as being polite to a T, I'm sure I've mentioned this on the pod before, that may be a shortening of to a tittle, i.e. to the tiniest degree possible. Because we use the phrase, or some people do, jot or tittle. And not one jot, yes, not one jot. It's the same idea, not one J, because it goes back to that idea of the iota. Um, And it could have been not one yot. Now, we did touch on this last time, but it just explained to me about the capitalization, because the capital I is one long line, possibly with one at the top and one at the bottom, mm. and a capital J may have a line across the top of the J, but there's no dots there. No. Why is that? Just I wish I could explain the, you know, <laughs> the sort of the rationale behind certain things. So in Old English, there was no distinction between uppercase and lowercase, really. And sometimes they'd have decorated letters and you'll find going right forward to medieval manuscript, you know, the beginning letter was beautifully illustrated. But it was pretty haphazard for a while and it was only with the development of the printing press Um, in Europe, thanks to William Caxton and others, that punctuation really, you know, proper nouns and uh, capitalisation really came into force. And printing began to favour, indeed, capitalisation of nouns, you know, in quite a Germanic style. So we used to capitalise nouns. Indeed, if you look at, I think, Jonathan Swift who was talking about, you know, the sort of abuse of the English tongue, etc. It looks really odd to modern eyes because so many of his nouns are capitalised. Um, and then by the end of the 18th century, when you started to have dictionaries that were kind of pretty prescriptive then and style manuals, that capitalisation of nouns faded away, but the capitalisation of, um, yeah, the beginning of sentences, etc., really took off. As to why we changed certain things, you know, why there was not a dot and why there was a, 
um, a straight line. I actually don't know the answer to that. Maybe that some of our purple listeners will do, but I'm not sure. Please let us know if you do. Mm. I know we've touched on this before, but I love you reminding me. Uppercase and lowercase. It's not an urban myth. It's to do with printing. And the characters no. were up in an uppercase and the, uh, when they did you know, hand printing with individual letters. I mean, is that correct? Absolutely correct. Yeah. So there were two typecases, uh, typesetters, and they were placed onto um, an angled stand. It's sort of usually sort of being angled away from you. And the case containing the capital letters was the higher and further away from the compos- from the compositor. So the upper case was the one that you had to reach up for. Amazing. And the lower case is the one that gave you the, the everyday letters that exactly. were much more used. Ah, yeah. Brilliant. Okay. Oh, okay. K is next. Yes, K. So after the the C in Latin was given the K sound, uh, the Romans only used the K for abbreviated forms of a smattering of words from Greek, um, and that was it. So we just talked about how felons or criminals might have the letter F branded on their faces. Well, in Roman times, it was a K, and that was for calumnia, for calumny. Um, really, which is pretty awful, isn't it? Okay, we also have kilo. It's used for a thousand, etc., etc. And is there's a? Oh, I think I probably should know this. There's a drug reference with K, isn't there? If I completely. No, well, up. this is your. This is more your territory. You're younger than me. <laughs> I should know this. No, I think I may have made it up. Um, I'm just looking down here, so. It can mean kindergarten in North American English. It can mean a king in chess and card games. It can mean knit. Uh, in Mozart's works, it means Köchel, which is a catalogue, um, and so on and so on. Oh, and the potassium as well. K is a name. Is that an abbreviation for Catherine, do you think? K? Oh, interesting. Yes, quite possibly. Quite possibly it was a pet name, but then became a name in its own right. Because it's funny, letters of the alphabet, it's unusual to be a letter of the alphabet. I mean, no. Uh, there's nobody, I've never met anybody called H, either H. B. Or, mm? There's B, isn't there? There is B. Um, B, short for Beatrice, quite often. Yes. Yeah. If you're called K, we like the name. All right, <laughs> let's do what we think we've got time for just one more letter. Okay. Could it be the letter L? Yeah, well, this is very sim- simple. In Egyptian hieroglyphics, L was rather beautifully a lioness. And in, Phine- in the Phoenician and Hebrew alphabet, it was, I think, an ox. But there's not much more to say about L, really. Twelfth letter of the alphabet. I mean, do you actually, you know how people have favourite numbers? Do you actually have a favourite letter of the alphabet? Because I really like L. Well, I really like Q. Because I think I write rather... Okay. Well, I think it's because I like the way I write my Q. Yeah. Um, which is nice. Which we're not, we're not going to cover Q this week. You're going to have to wait for that. For another. We'll have to wait. Why, do you, why um, is L your favourite? I don't know. I quite like double L words in um, Scrabble and in... I've got a word game as well, and, and I just really like double Ls. I don't know. It's the Roman numeral for 50, of course, and that was complete... Uh, coincidence. It was simply that the symbol that the Romans used for 50 looked a little bit like the L. It was similar in shape. And then in ancient Roman notation, L with a stroke above it was 50,000. And we also have LB, don't we, for pounds, if we're talking in old money. And LB is short for Libra, which was uh, a pound in Roman terms and then represented, of course, by a set of scales um, because it was used for weighing, which is why the symbol for the for Libra in the horoscope is a pair of scales. And which alphabet is L for leather? You know, there's one of those, there are lots of alphabets, aren't there, where to, you know, A is ah. alpha, A alpha, 
The, well, it's lima. It's lima in the NATO alphabet. I'm not sure, actually. I feel L for leather is an expression that I'm... Well, there's hell for leather, isn't there? She's ah. going hell for leather. Uh, yes, you're right. <laughs> she went hell for leather. Getting hell for leather. And what was that about? Yeah. Uh, if you go hell for leather, I think the idea is that you are on your uh, horse and you are wearing out the saddle. So it's hell, hell for leather. You're heading like a bat out of hell and you're wearing out the leather of your horse's saddle. And that's the Do idea. Do you still get letters sent to you through the post? Um, very rarely, but sometimes the countdown team gets some wonderful letters written, uh, handwritten from um, some of our older viewers. And those were always really special. I've got quite a few of them. Look, I've got one here on my desk because they just really make me happy. Well, I got a letter this morning. Do you know who I mean by the actress Penelope Keith, now Dame? Of course. Keith. To the Manor Born. To the Manor Born, and before that, The Good Life. A great actress and a lovely yeah. human being. Uh, she sent me an email the other day, and then this morning a, a letter came, and she said, I sent you an email, but I thought I'd send you a letter as well because I like getting letters. I hope you like getting letters. Oh, Penny. That's all it said. And she just liked the idea of sending a letter. It made me think this weekend I must send a few letters to people, even short Send letters. her one back. Send her a little postcard or I will. something nice. I will. I'll send her. I'll send her a note and I'll say you encourage me to do so. Well, people yes. can write to us. Uh, sending a letter may be difficult because this is an international show. We now have the benefit of being able to get in touch over the World Wide Web. So it's purplepeople yeah. at somethingrhymes.com. We'll come back to the rest of the alphabet. We'll take you from M through to Z or Z uh, at a later date. But today, shall we deal with our correspondence? Who have we heard from this week, Susie? So the first one is, well, we have voice notes from Charlie. Dear Susie and Giles, I'm a long-time fan and first-time correspondent. At my inner London comprehensive, the Jamaican English or multicultural London English word koch was used as a verb, noun and adjective to mean to hang out or good place for hanging out. I then attended a boarding sixth form in South Wales, where Welsh people would use a very similar word, very similarly, to convey that friendliness. Koch, with a W. Are they etymologically related? A cursory Google suggests not, but it seems too big a coincidence not to be the case. Ever yours, Charlie. God, what a brilliant question. I like Charlie's voice. I like the way he spells Charlie, C-H-A-R-L-E-Y. I like his sign-off, ever yours. That yeah. has an old-school charm about it. I would have pronounced the Scot the Welsh word, quetch, because it's spelled like that, but is, is it not pronounced that way? No, it's, it's definitely kutch. Kutch. Uh, to rhyme with C-H. butch. Mm. Butch, uh, essentially. So, well, I can I can start with that one, if you like, because kutch is regularly voted the, the favourite word of uh, the Welsh nation because it's more than a hug. It's a kind of embrace, but it's a sort of embrace that fills someone with a sense of belonging and for home and that kind of thing. And actually, it's a sibling of the word couch, where you are sort of wrapped up and comfortable. Um, in French, we have coucher, so coucher, you go to bed, but also you are just sort of almost... Snuggling up. Yeah, snuggling up and finding that area of comfort. And that is what is in the couch, the Welsh couch. Um, and it is an absolutely beautiful word. Now, the Jamaican multicultural London English word. So... This one is a little bit evasive when I was looking up the origin of this. And Do you mean elusive really... rather than evasive? Oh, yes, elusive. Thank you. Okay. Well, it probably was trying to evade me as well <laughs> with my little magnifying glass. But yeah, it was elusive. Thank you. Uh, you see, I, this is really good that you picked me up because people always say, oh, I'm so worried about emailing you because in case, you know, I might make a mistake. And I just say, no, I make them all the time, as I just have. Okay, so 
I am looking this up now and I'm looking it up. It is in the OED and uh, its first, well, one of its first definitions is to spend time relaxing, which is, you know, quite similar to what Charlie is saying now, to hang out, just to sort of, you know, to chill basically. But it could also mean to stay or sleep somewhere on a temporary basis, a bit like sofa surfing, or you might cotch on the streets. In the 19th century in Jamaican English, it meant to rest oneself, but also to lean on something for support, uh, really. Uh, Also had that sense of, as I say, sleeping somewhere temporarily. But by the 1920s, another interesting sense came about, which was basically being sort of blocked or preventing movement in some way. So the wheels of progress had been cotched is from one newspaper in Kingston, Jamaica. Um, we talk about co- yeah, cotched wheels, etc. But the slang sense, uh, particularly in British Afro-Caribbean usage, is to relax or to pass the time, as I say, to hang out. And the only origin that we think we know is from that wedge sense, which is a bit of an outlier because that's definitely not the one that's used predominantly in slang. And that suggests it's a variation on Scotch, as in you Scotch progress. And Richard Alsop wrote the Dictionary of Caribbean English Usage, which I worked on a little bit when I worked at OUP and I met him and he he produced really authoritative work on Caribbean English. And he recorded a sense of of Scotch and Cotch uh, as a verb meaning to find or be given temporary make-do accommodation. So that's coming closer to the idea of hanging out. But, you know, again, it may go back to that French coucher to lie down, which would mean it is related to the Welsh couch, uh, but we just don't know. And Charlie, I know I'm going to disappoint you here, but all I can say is thank you for the question. I'm going to pass it on to the OED in the hope that if their noses weren't twitching already, that they will definitely then get out their deer stalkers and their magnifying glass and and get on the hunt as to whether couch and cotch are indeed related, because it does from their meaning, you're absolutely right, uh, sound as if they might be. That was very intriguing. Brilliant question from Charlie. Very long. We've now got another voice note from somebody else who's been listening for a while but hasn't actually been in touch before. Hello, Giles, Susie and the team. Um, We love the podcast. I'm a first-time emailer. I've been listening now for almost two years and I wondered if you could shed any light on the term nutter. I'm not sure if it's a simple slang, but nut seems to be a common way to describe someone who might be eccentric, deluded or unhinged. This also goes for other terms such as nutty, nutty as a fruit cake, nut job. Thank you. Richard from London. Well, I think I know the answer to this. It, but but you tell us what the actual answer is, Susie. Well, no, I think you tell me what you think. Well, I think it's all to do with the head, isn't it? It is. like a nut. Exactly. The shape, entirely that. So the old English word nut comes from the Latin nux, which also meant a nut. It also gave us nucleus, incidentally. But the idea of a crazy or eccentric person or somebody who is a person who is really obsessively interested in a certain thing, such as a speed nut, for example, if you're really into car racing, etc. Those date from only the early 20th century. And yes, they probably come from that informal sense of a person head that gave us do your nut and getting very cross it gave us nutty meaning but eccentric and it also is the source of nutting someone by butting them in the head and that comes from around the 1930s so as simple as that really as simple as the shape of the head it's a bit like bean um, as well we have a beanie because bean was also used for um for the head because of the similarity in shape you and i are old enough 
just about, you and I are old enough, you're just about old enough, to remember, indeed you may have worked with, the late, great Frank Muir. Uh, Everyone's a fruit and nut case. Is that what you're going to do? That's exactly what I was thinking of. It was a commercial for Cadbury's fruit and nut chocolate. <laughs> it was such a good ad. He performed it. He was a most amusing, very tall man, wrote brilliant scripts and then became something of a performer himself, a delightful human being. This usually this could be my excuse for reciting my favourite poem, which I'm, I'm not going to have as my poem of the week because we have not time for that. Uh, yet. But uh, you know my poem, Don't Worry If Your Job Is Small and Your Rewards no. Are Few. Remember that the mighty oak was once a nut like you. Oh, I do remember that. Yeah, yeah it's lovely. My, one of my favourites. It's favorites. very nice, that one. Now, yeah. you got, uh, please, if you've got a letter or a query for us, do get in touch. You you know the address. We're here and we love hearing from you. If you've been listening for years but haven't been in touch before, it's simply write to us, purplepeople at somethingrhymes.com. Now, people do collect your trio of words. And what have you got for us this week, Susie? Well, I'm going to say the first one slowly, lest you think it's something else. Nickeras. Ooh. Nickeras. Okay. And so N-I-C-K-E-R-E-R-S. Nickeras. And I I may have mentioned this before, uh, but I was reminded the other day because I have a new pair of trainers, um, which for some reason make a really very loud noise as I'm walking and people have genuinely been turning around to find out where it's coming from and knickers are simply new shoes that make a creaking noise oh I like it's very that. specific isn't it I, I like that that's one a too. useful word mm. yeah now I as you know am very nesh Giles I am extremely susceptible to the cold and uh, recently we've had some very cold days here in the UK and I have been wearing a huge number of thermals but occasionally it backfires, uh, especially if you walk into the shop from the icy outside when they've got the heating on full whack, in which case I might end up with a bit of a lab dab. Oh. And this is a dialect word. A lab dab is a profuse perspiration. Oh. Lab dab. It's it's all, I mean, I do wear deodorant, so that's all good, but I just suddenly become incredibly hot. So lab dab. It's really curious because you would never, looking at the hyphenated lab dab thing that that's what it meant mm. but it does and i like this one and apologies to any of our purple people called tim but in cornwall and in old cornish a tim doodle oh a tim doodle was a stupid fellow oh, no. i like to think it was affectionate oh you're such a tim doodle uh, as in you're such a wally but um i just quite like the sound of it Tim, it's a bad luck being called Tim because people say tim, tim and things don't they i think it's a belittling word that people use oh, which okay. is not fair no Oh. No, I like Tim. I like the, I like the name Tim. I like the name Good Tim. Do, do you Tim. prefer it to Timothy? Yes, I think I do. Definitely, yes. Yes, Tim. And Timothy does sound like a sort of slightly spoilt child, do you think? Yes, I think you're right. And Tiny Tim is one of the great heroes of fiction. So, yes. Well, that, yes. a lovely trio of words. Apologies to all Timothys out there as well. Uh, right, Can, do you have a poem for us? I have a special poem today. It's a simple poem, but it's a lovely poem. And it's written by a gentleman who I met this morning. He is rising 92. He's called uh, Colin. And uh, he, I say he's called Colin. He's called Colin Hinton, born in 1932. And yeah. he has taken part in a competition organised by a, a, a charity, really, that I started called Poetry Together. I think I've told you about this before. You have, yeah, it's lovely. We get older people in their 70s, 80s, 90s. We've had centenarians and younger people of school age 
to uh, meet up, learn poems by heart, meet up uh, in an old folks' home or to school, and they share the poems they've learnt, and then they have tea and cake together. And it's, it's been very successful. Hundreds of schools and care homes around the world, not just in this country, but around the world, are now taking part in this. And we've been very lucky. We've been supported since the beginning by Queen Camilla. Anyway, today on a television program in the UK called This Morning, we had the winners of our poetry writing competition come in. A nine-year-old boy who was completely brilliant uh, called Avi, who came from Buckingham Primary School, and this gentleman whose poem I'm going to read you, uh, Colin, who lives at Clarendon House in Buckingham. And he wrote a poem about happiness. And he was a lovely man. I really enjoyed meeting him. And he was coping incredibly well with a widowerhood. He'd met his wife when he was 14 and she was 13. And she oh. died about 18 months ago. And they'd been together all their lives. And um, he said, uh, I said, you seem very happy. He said, well, I was very well looked after by my wife. Oh. And he said, that's the secret. He said, the secret of looking of, of, of a good marriage, he said, is if you look after her and she looks after you, then you're yeah. not thinking about yourselves, you're thinking about somebody else, and that keeps you going. Anyway, good. he'd written this poem about happiness. And so with his permission, I said, can I uh, read it on Something Rises with Purple? And he said, it'd be my pleasure. Happiness by Colin Hinton, Rising 92. Happiness for me is my aim. Happiness for all others is my aim. This is what I will endeavour to attain with all the thoughts within my brain. To all my family, I wish happiness. To all my friends, I wish happiness. To others I meet today, I wish happiness. To the whole world, I wish happiness. For this, I will endeavour to do my best, to spread happiness from east to west. I will always smile, laugh and jest, so that all that meet me will feel at rest. Oh, Isn't that nice? That is gorgeous. Spreader of, of happiness. Age 91. Impressive. I love that. There should be a word for someone who spreads happiness, don't you think? Yes, there should. There really should be. Well, Let's have a think about that one. If people can think of it, feel free to send it in. Absolutely, yeah. And you can email us anytime. We always would love to hear from you purplepeople at somethingrhymes.com um, and if you did like the show please carry on following us and please do recommend us to friends and family because that's what keeps us going and there's also the Purple Plus Club where Giles and I are scurrying off to now uh, where you can listen ad free and you can get some exclusive bonus episodes on well not actually always the same thing that, we, that we've been discussing in the main pod sometimes we talk about people who have supplied us with wit and wisdom that's where we're headed now isn't it Giles it certainly is I've got special monogram slippers to wear in the club <laughs> today, oh yes. Anyway, Something Rhymes with Purple is a Sony Music Entertainment production produced by Naya Deo with additional production from Poppy Thompson, Charlie Morell, Ollie Wilson, they've all got good names, haven't they? And somebody who, well, like all the great figures in history, whether it's, you know, I don't know, it could be Elvis or Jesus or, I don't know, I'm trying to think of the others. Stalin? No, let's not go there. Anyway, <laughs> it's Rishi. No Tim Diddle, he... 